This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 826, a conversation with Adam Hughes. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 826. It's my conversation with Adam Hughes, celebrated artist. Uh, and uh, I'm very excited to share this with everyone. I was able to sit down with him on, I guess, the 11th of November. Uh, we had a great conversation. I think it was almost two hours. Uh, I can't even remember right now. But uh, it was a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it. Uh, so we'll get into it in just a second. There was a brief moment in the middle where uh, he had a brownout on his end. So uh, if it seems like we kind of jumped to a different topic relatively abruptly, that's where that was. Uh, so don't be worried about, you know, did I cut something out of the show? I cut out us being like, wait, where'd you go? Oh, hey, you had a brownout. Let's let's keep chatting. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to hear that. Uh, but I had a great time. Um, Adam is such a influential cover artist. Um, he's also obviously done interiors as well. But we talk a lot about his cover work and how that's kind of progressed. Talk about his uh, career kind of getting into comics. Um, so I thought this was really interesting to kind of get his perspective on things. And at times we, we dabble outside of just kind of talking about his own career. But we talk about, you know, kind of comics themselves and how, they, how, uh, how they're marketed, how they're kind of geared towards. I, I've brought out, it's interesting, I think I've... Uh, numerous times now brought up um, you know earlier this year when Jerry Conway was kind of putting stuff up online about how he felt that his generation had kind of in some ways changed and failed the industry because of how it started to uh, slowly move the market away from its original target demographic and how this you know started to kind of lose that you know that influx of new readers every few years because you you were targeting a younger audience and so as they as people would age out there'd be new people aging in and then as you you know kind of progress the industry into targeting quote unquote targeting uh, older audiences you don't really have that entry point for the younger readers anymore anyways we get into this more in the conversation i feel like at some point i should just have jerry on the show to talk about it because i'm so intrigued by the concept um and he's such a eloquent speaker that i think he'd be able to elucidate a lot more on that topic anyways uh, i'm going to get right into the episode but first i just wanted to mention that if you want to email me you can do so at comic shen- shen- sorry comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate and review the show on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on stitcher thanks again and without further ado let's right, jump right into the conversation with celebrated artist Adam Hughes. Adam, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast today. How are you doing? Oh, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing fine. Yourself? I'm doing well. It's uh, exciting to have you on the show. I've always been a big fan of your work. Um, before we kind of get into your work, though, I'm always curious to kind of go back uh, into the kind of way back machine. When did comics first kind of enter your life in terms of an art form or just a form of entertainment? How did they first kind of rear their ugly head? Um. Uh, my first comics, I, I vividly remember this, I, my first comics were given to me, uh, a cardboard box of them. They were hand-me-downs from two older cousins who had, you know, air quotes, outgrown them. <laughs> and uh, their comics were, you know, uh, an assortment of Marvel comics and some some Richie Rich, uh, you know, some Betty and Veronica, Archie type stuff. Um uh, you know, I, I vividly remember that the first one that I pulled out and looked at was Fantastic Four 81. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the second one I looked at was Tales of Suspense 66, I believe, The Secret Origin of the Red Skull. Some good stuff to get in on. 
Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, you know, um, was funny was, um, you know, at that point, I loved reruns of, of the, uh, you know, the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon. Mm. And, um, you know, I did not realize that Spider. I thought Spider Man was a was a cartoon character before he, before I knew he was a comic book character first. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually wonder about that sometimes too. Is that when people these days, you know, because there's such a proliferation of comic book characters in other mediums, um, how often that, that sometimes might actually happen for people, where you know they find Spider-Man because of a movie or, you know, whatever the case might be without really realizing the comic book aspect to it. I wonder if that actually happens. I bet it does. I mean, if you think about it, you know, uh, it happened to me, you know, almost 50 years ago. And, you know, there was only three television channels and, <laughs> uh, and, and no internet. And, uh, uh, you know, nowadays, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I wonder if there are kids who are going who discovers Spider-Man from the the the, uh, the PS4 game? Mm. You know, and at uh, yeah, I, my hope is that at some point when they discover the source material, they they give it a shot. You know, I, I uh, you know I've I've talked to people who are you know big fans of the MCU movies. They're big fans of the you know the Nolan Batman mm-hmm. films or all sorts of stuff like that. And then they'll turn around and go, "Oh, do they still make comics?" <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and it feels like uh, thanks, thanks Hollywood. You kind of failed us there. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I agree with the people that like if we have to look at commercials, you know, in well, you know, <laughs> nobody looks at anything in, in movie theaters at the moment. <laughs> but um, you know, like you sit through the the trailers and then the pre-trailers and the the, the commercials for all this sort of stuff. It's like. You know, if you if you go see a Spider Man movie, shouldn't there be at some point an, an ad for a S- Spider Man comics? Mm. Uh, uh, and I realize that comics aren't nearly the uh, the you know the high end entertainment industry that you know say perhaps a police procedural on TNT is. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it'd be nice to, to 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 spread the word. But I agree with you. Yeah, it's very possible that uh, you know. Some young pup out there discovers, you know, Star Wars from a toy mm. and only down the road realizes, oh, it, there's a movie, you know. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. It sounds so crazy, but yeah, it's not crazy. That's how things do happen. It's interesting. I, along the lines of the idea that, you know, the comic industry is obviously, you know, maybe not as widely proliferated as it used to be. Uh, Jerry Conway has obviously been very uh kind of outspoken in the last you know few months saying that you know it was his his generation kind of ruined the comic industry by slowly making it more adult and kind of writing for for themselves and for an older audience and kind of slowly phasing out that younger audience that had proven the kind of you know every four-year kind of lifeblood of the industry for many years up until that point how do you feel about that idea that you know at, at some point they kind of started kind of alienating the original kind of young base and just kind of writing for older audiences well, maybe he's got a point. Um, you know, I, I uh, uh, I've been accused of a lot of things, but but thinking deep thoughts has never been one of them. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, it's it is very possible that you know you you lose you lose one audience in in 
in pursuit of another, even if it is accidental pursuit. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I would like it if there were more comics for, you know, the younger crowd. And then, you know, some of the publishers do produce them. You know, I, uh, my wife and I have always enjoyed giving those out at Halloween, you know, like, like, you know, here's some Scooby-Doo comics, here's Batman adventures comics, you know, here's some fun stuff. And, um, for the longest time, uh, like it's weird. Uh, like our neighborhood has, I think all the kids have aged out, so we don't get a lot of trick or treaters the way we used to. But in a in our golden age of 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 you know trick or treating a few years ago here in the in our home, um, we rapidly became known as the cool house. We were the <laughs> we were the people that gave out the comics, and um, people would ask like if we handed them candy, they'd go, "Do you have?" Aren't you the comic book people? Not not meaning like, hey, are, aren't you award winning comic book artist Adam Hughes? Like like no no, hand over the comics, fatty. You know. Uh, and um, I remember there was one time, one year, this little little kid dressed as um, Woodstock from Peanuts. Nice. Came came back in tears, and his 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 parents said he lost his comics that we had given him earlier that night, like they'd fallen out of his bag or, you know, little kids aren't you know, little, you know, I mean, this was a, t- a tiny, tiny child. So we gave the kid like all the rest of the comics we had. We just rolled them up and stuffed them into that little plastic pumpkin that he was using to carry stuff around. <laughs> and I mean, the kid was crying because he lost his comics and, you know, he might've been three, maybe four. And I was like, well, you know, cool. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I like seeing, I mean, I like, Keeping my, you know, I don't, I don't make comics for a particular audience. I just make comics to keep me from going out of my mind, and <laughs> I, do, I just do stuff that I find interesting without paying attention too much to whatever target audience enjoys it. Mm. And uh, I don't think that this is true for everyone, but I think that sometimes if you think about the crowd a little too much, for me personally, it'll alter the way I do stuff. Mm. And uh, I've gotten. You know, 30 years so far out of just kind of like making myself happy and, and, you know, thank the, thank the universe, thank the Lord, thank the fates, whatever, that there are enough people out there that enjoy it as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I would, I would, I would, you know, I mean, I, I, and especially if you, if you look at it, if you look at the fact that like, you know, Every week there's five Batman comics that come out. Mm. You know, every week there's like six Spider-Man books. <laughs> you know, you sit there and go, I think all these companies could float a full-time, you know, junior readers division where they just make that sort of stuff that, you know, you, parents don't have to, to double check it and nobody has to be worried about uh, what – what a kid is going to discover in, in, in the in the comic a little a little earlier than they should discover it in real life. Hmm. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind it. And I, I do think there. Are, I mean, I certainly don't spend a lot of time in comic shops, even though we've got one like walking distance from my house now. <laughs> a couple years a couple years ago, Infinite Realities Comics opened up, and on a nice day, I could walk there. And I I don't I don't go to the comic shops that much. So I'm really not sure. Um, how many comics there are for younger people? I mean, Jerry Conway is right. Uh, I mean, there was there was a point where like any kid in the world could pick up a Ditko 
Spider-Man comic and love it. And within a few years, Spider-Man was battling, um, you know, drug addiction. <laughs> and, you know, Spider-Man, not himself, but like the fact that, you know, his roommate, his, uh, his buddy Harry, um, you know, was hooked on stuff. And, yeah, but it got heady pretty fast, I guess, if you look about it. If you look at it in, in hindsight, you go, if Spider-Man was created in, what, 62? Yeah. Um, you know, by like 1968 or 69, he's fighting junkies and, 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 and beating up dealers. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like, that's pretty quick. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, you know, maybe that was a little bit too much. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that he, that he's taking some sort of, you know, unprodded responsibility for it because nobody's complained, I don't think, uh, but uh, anyways, yeah, it's a rambling answer to um, uh, maybe he's right, but I'm not the, I'm not smart enough to to to, to glom on. <laughs> it is interesting, as you mentioned, that like you, you know, kind of taking a, a form of responsibility for something where I think if anyone was to kind of point at a specific period where comics maybe became more mature or too mature for our, kind of maybe a, a broad general audience, I would not have said it was his period. Um, but I guess what he says is that they kind of laid the track and started kind of pushing it along that way. And then we got the eighties where things got a lot darker. Yeah. But you know, they got, they, 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 they didn't get darker to the exclusion of other things. I mean, yeah, by 1969, Spider-Man was fighting, you know, drugs in the inner city, but, Six years after that, Spider-Man was in had his own Electric Company comic book, and it was like helping you. There was helping you learn how to count and spell. And I read those as much as I read the, um, you know, Sp- Spider-Man's girlfriend dying stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, by eighty was eighty six, whatever. Whenever Dark Knight Returns came out. Uh, you could sit there and go, Batman's dark. <laughs> you know, wow, <while laughs> Batman got dark. But you could go by Detective Comics, which was, you know, I think at the time being written by Max Allen Collins, and Batman was walking down the street in, in, in broad daylight going, hello, citizen. <laughs> you know, <and> he, <laughs> some of these characters are so, I mean, yeah, in the 80s we had like, American Flag, and we had, um, you know, Love and Rockets, and we had Nexus, and we had all these other things that were, you know, maybe a little bit beyond your average kid, uh, but there was still stuff for them. And, uh, uh, I, I, I would love to think that, you know, comics can be, you know, comics are like books. Comics are like movies. Comics are, comics are like television. Uh, there isn't any one audience. There isn't any one genre and you can, you can make them for anyone at any time. Hmm. So to go back for a second, so when you you know first start reading comics, I mean so that's kind of your, your you've mentioned kind of your first major kind of blush with comics. Was it a sustained love affair? Did you kind of drop out at some point, like many do when they get a little bit older, or was it kind of a no? This is it. I'm I'm into this. I I was chained to my love of comics <laughs> for a except for a short, I think three-year period in high school where I might not have been reading them 
or getting new stuff. You know, I was still rereading my, the, my you know, my my comics that I had collected up to that point. And you know, I'm, I'm a first generation, all new, all different X Men fan. I'm I'm one of those people that you know. I was reading that when it was a, a bi-monthly garage band of a comic, <laughs> and 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 when all the posers started to hop in, you know, I mean, I used to have a comic book collecting club with my cousins, and we were all Marvel zombies. They, I, I, I loved Superman and Batman, but a lot of my cousins were like, oh, "DC stupid, Marvel's where it's at," and I got sort of peer pressured into going, "Yeah, you're right," and then I just you know had my you know Superman and. And detective comics hidden under my pillow so they would never find them. <laughs> but we bought all the Marvel books every month and we had – one of us had the largest basement in, in their home. And we would keep all the comics as one big giant library that all of us could share. And some of us were into – you know, had one cousin who was into the Avengers and the Defenders and Doctor Strange. I had another cousin who was into – uh, you know, Iron Man and Daredevil and stuff like that. And I was really big into the Fantastic Four because my love of that, as I had said from my very first comic, FF81, had ever changed. And I remember when I discovered the all-new, all-different X-Men. It, uh, it was uh, um, X-Men 104. It was when the all-new, all-different X-Men encountered Magneto for the first time and got their asses handed back to them. And uh, it, I, my copy of X-Men 104 was a, a copy with the cover cut off that I bought for a nickel at a flea market. <laughs> and I was like, these characters are cool. This one guy's got claws. This other guy's obviously Satan who can teleport. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I remember trying to, to tell my cousins. And all my cousins, you know, are older than me. Uh I remember, like, you know, hey, this is really cool, and the X-Men's kind of neat now, and I got ridiculed. They were just like, ah, oh, the X-Men, bah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, within six months, you know, my one cousin was making makeshift claws, you know, and another cousin was like, you know, found something that looked like an X-Men visor, and, you know, the X-Men were all cool, and, um... You know it. Uh, you know those those are the comics that that I still was loving, even though, like I said, or in some some point in high school, I kind of got distracted either by you know girls or my failing grades and the pressure from my family and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and the one thing I never stopped doing was drawing. Though the one thing I never I've, I've been drawing ever since I was about four, and even though there was that little window in high school where I wasn't reading comics, I was still drawing all the time. And I think what I switched to full time was drawing Star Wars stuff. Mm. Even though I've been drawing Star Wars stuff ever since it had come out, I, uh, I was 10 when Star Wars came out and, um, the, uh, 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 my high school years were like, I graduated in 85, so that would have been like 81 to 85. So that early 80s was the period where I maybe wasn't reading comics too hard. Uh, I never stopped drawing Star Wars. So Star Wars kept me in the, the realm of drawing the things you love in the margins of your math test. <laughs> and then when I graduated and I still got a job and I started you know, making my own money, um, then I started buying some more comics. Then, you know, not long after I graduated high school, I started working in a comic shop, and that made it a lot easier to fall back in love with comics ten times harder. 
when you start working at the comic shop, I mean, again, this is kind of the, a really great period in the, in the kind of late 80s when all these you know big titles start coming out. What was that kind of process? What did that feel like to be kind of you're back in it, you're, you're getting back into comics, and it's all this explosion of new material, which is really scrapping everyone's you know, imaginations by storm? Well, it was weird because you look back at it now and you go, wow, what an amazing time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the boom in, uh, you know, uh, independent comics, everything from, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to um, whatever it was, you know, Nexus, Love and Rockets, all these different books from these different companies providing you with, you know, hey, here's something a little different than those superhero books you've been, you've been reading. Um, now you look back at it and you're going, what an amazing time. Back then, being in the middle of it, you just go, well, this is normal. Hmm. <laughs> this must, this must, must be what it's like to be 19 and working in a comic book store. Um, and I imagine it's a lot like the late 60s. You know, and you're in the whole counterculture movement, and, and rock and roll music is just going in this amazing, strange direction. And you probably thought that was normal, and that was like, yeah, this, this is what this is what every 19 year old goes through, you know. <laughs> and then when you look back on it, you go, what, a, a, what a mad, crazy, once in a generation moment that that was and that's how it looks looking back on it now when i think about going i mean i worked in i worked in two different comic shops and the first one was about the size of a mazda miata i mean it didn't even have its own bathroom and you had to um i had to close the shop and go three doors down to the police station if i needed to use the bathroom oh my god and and, um, you know, there wasn't even a cash register. It was just a cigar box, and I had a calculator. Um, but, you know, being a small shop, it had all the new books, and it had it then, okay, for, for how many, you know, you know, back issues you can fit into a Miata. Um, <laughs> and I, but I rapidly read all the Marvels and DCs that were in the shop, and I went over to that third wall with these strange new non-Marvel, non-DC comics that that, that, that that scared me at first. And I, that's when I discovered Nexus. That's when I discovered Love and Rockets. That's when I discovered American Flag and all those other sort of landmark books. Um, and it was it was amazing. It was eye-opening. My, my, my horizons broadened like I'd never had them broaden before or since. <clears throat> but it was just... You know, at the time it was just another Wednesday, <laughs> so I was like, "Oh yeah, okay." You know, I guess that's what I, I just—I must have assumed at the time <clears throat> that these books and these types of books were always there. I just hadn't noticed them yet, mm. and uh, I wasn't—I uh, wasn't quite aware that it was in the middle of some kind of strange, you know, watershed moment in an industry or an art form. So, uh, yeah. like I said, I'm not a I'm not a, a thinker of deep thoughts, but you're kind of forcing me to. And now, <laughs> and now I'm going. Oh yeah, I mean, now granted, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me. People talk about like, oh, the greatest year in Hollywood was 1939, and they go, you know, 
Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, you know, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, blah, 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 blah. Nobody ever mentions the, the dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of garbage films that came, came and went and never made it even into being shown on television, much less ever being put on, you know, v- VHS or Laserdisc or DVD or Blu-ray. Mm. And, you know, those comics that came out in the mid-80s, you know, when I was selling them, I mean, I was working for a guy and I was selling them, I had to know the product a little bit. And everybody remembers, <clears throat> everybody remembers Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nobody remembers Centrifugal Bumble Puppy. <laughs> or opera knockety tunes, or like you know, not that they were bad comics. It's just they they were cute, they were fun, they were black and white, they were published, and they came and they went. And it's funny that the stuff that sticks and becomes part of the I don't know what you would call it, but sort of the the face of that generation, mm. culturally speaking. There's a lot of stuff that didn't make it, <laughs> and I remember. I remember because I read it all. Just I thought that was my job to be informed, and also when you work in a comic book shop, the size it's not much bigger than the the, the white long boxes that the comics are stored in. Um, it is re- it is very easy to read everything <laughs> to, to familiar familiarize yourself with all of the merchandise, <laughs> and so people could come in and go, oh, "I'm in the mood for you know this," and I go, "Ah ha ha." Here's this Marvel comic that might suit your suit your needs, or somebody would say, "I'm in the mood for that," and I would go, "Ha ha ha!" Here's this black and white independent comic that only printed two thousand copies. You might dig this. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, it's sad to say that my comics knowledge, which probably ended somewhere around 1990, um, <laughs> like with the exclusion of maybe Hellboy uh, coming out in '94, uh, I, you know, I. Uh, I can remember a ridiculous amount of comics that don't exist in, in at all. Not even in people's memory. There's not even like a comics race memory where you're like, well, yes, in the day in the days of yore, people could remember Myron Moose funnies, and I'm like, you know, no, and me and t- me and twelve other people remember Myron Moose funnies. <laughs> so I have a question then. What what actually prompted you to get the job at the comic book store? I mean, if you hadn't really been in like kind of following comics for a little while, you were kind of more of a Star Wars guy and, again, illustrating Star Wars. What kind of brought you or made you decide to even get a job at a comic book shop? Well, I think I think it, it wasn't the comic book shop that made me, you know, fall back in love with comics. I think that I had, I had fallen back in love with comics. And with very few exceptions, all the comics I had bought up, up till that, that three-year gap in high school had been purchased at the local general store on the spinner rack in my hometown. And I can only remember two or three times actually going to a comic shop. So that was weird, you know, sort of like, you know, hey, I'd go visit my uncle in who, who lived in Maryland, and he would take us down to the Baltimore um, waterfront and Steve Jeppy had a comic shop down there and I remember going in there and I had t- like $20 and I, I think I bought like X-Men 95 you know and, um, uh, <clears throat> you know so I, I was already falling back in love with it but see the thing is after you graduate I've got a car I've got a job I can go to a comic shop anytime I want mm. so I think 
I think what had happened was I started going to different comic shops, and with this little one that opened up in the next town over, I went in there once, and I guess I was in there enough times that the owner was like, hey, you want to you work for me? Um, now, now, I will tell you, I do not remember what I had for breakfast this morning, so I... <laughs> I could be in, I could be entirely wrong in this recollection, but I think I was just a regular customer at this little. It's called Thunder Road Comics, and it was in Burlington, New Jersey, and um, it's only three blocks from the river, and and fortunately only two doors from the police station. In case you're, you know, you really had to go. Um, <laughs> you know, I can just I can just remember like closing up the shop, and then I would go piss with criminals. And it was just like this is a weird existence. This is a pretty strange. This is a pretty. Strange, I, I, I guess this is the, the, the you know. I guess this is that wacky childhood everybody's talking about. You know, <laughs> uh, live live your dreams, son. Uh, so yeah, it was. Uh, it, I think that was the root. I think it was you know the the freedom of young adulthood, and um, uh, who knows? Like maybe if I'd gone to a different comic book shop in in, in the town in the other direction, maybe they would have hired me. But uh, no, it was it was there, and I'm, I'm glad it happened because I did learn I did learn that there was a, a much larger world than just you know superhero comics. So I'm, I'm curious how that connects. I mean, so I mean, as you said, you're already, you're always kind of doing art, you're always drawing, and so you're working at a comic shop. You're learning about this other kind of world of of comic books outside of the big two. Is that around the same time that you're thinking, like, how do I break in? Well, maybe it's easier than I thought because it's not just the big two. There's this whole other avenue. Well, I I always wanted to work in comics. I always even 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 in that three year distraction period. I it's really it's a it's it's a weird to think to think of now that you're 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 you know tying me to a chair and putting a lamp in my face. Uh, <laughs> Is that like at no point did I sit there and go, I don't know if I want to work in comics. I always knew that I did. I just wasn't going and buying the regular comics every every week on when on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it was back then for that three year period. But I always knew I wanted to work in comics, and there was a part of me that said, I never doubted it. I never doubted that I would get to work in comics maybe not have a career maybe not be able to do it for my whole life but i i knew i could do it it wasn't arrogance per se it was just that well this is the only thing i'm good at you know i i really am not good at retail i can't flip a decent burger um and i never bothered to learn how to retread tires so uh i guess i will get a job doing the only thing that i can do half half decently and you know that, that that wasn't arrogance, and it's and it's barely confidence. It's sort of a well, this is all I'm good for, so I guess it's going to happen. You know, I had the real world. The real world hadn't beaten optimism out of me yet, so I was just like, "Yup, that's the way it's going to happen." And the you know because of that boom in the '80s, it was really easy to get a job working in comics. I got work in comics way before I was actually ready to, I mean, my work wasn't good enough. Um, but back then, if you had $2,000 in a dream, you could publish your own black and white book and get it sold. You know, there was more than one distributor at the time. Uh, and even without the help of the internet, these books were, 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 were doing fairly well for people. Hmm. And 
you know, some books like the, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did very well <laughs> for the people that created them. And, uh, you know, so it was not that hard when there are more jobs than there are people applying for them to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were just enough conventions, you know, especially like, you know, I, I lived in the, in this part of, um, South Jersey that was only 65 minutes from New York city. And it was only 35 minutes from Philadelphia. So I could easily get to any convention, any major convention. Uh, me and my buddies, we could all just hop in one car. We could even take a train. And it was not hard to go to one of these bigger conventions where a lot of big-name artists, writers, and editors, you know, editors, the people with the ability to give work, uh, were at shows. And uh, yeah, probably looking back on it, considering the, the, the amount of comics looking for halfway decent talent, I probably would have... If I had failed to get in, that really would have been a major screw up on my part. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was not it was not. A, I didn't I didn't I really didn't wear out any shoes. You know, going from from door to door begging for work. I took my comic drawings, which weren't even sequential; they were just drawings of characters, um, and just showed them to pros at different at different conventions. And you know, one thing led to another, and eventually, I got work. Did you think at the time that, I mean, that you would get something like Justice League so fast, relatively speaking? No. I, um, you know, it's really easy to look at whatever's missing in your life. And a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a smart person and a dedicated person and a person who isn't vexed by too many hang-ups could go... You know, I need to lose some weight. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what it takes to, to lose that weight. Or I, you know, I want to be an astronaut, so I'm gonna do what it takes to be an astronaut. It's really hard to look at yourself and go, huh? I do not have a ton of ambition. Because <laughs> where the hell do you get ambition? <laughs> you know, ambition is like, it's like. It's like height or shocking red hair. You're either born with it or you're not. Mm. And I have um, stumbled into most of my most of my early successes back then. And I they were accidents. They were just like, oh, okay, you know. Um, uh, I didn't I didn't hunt for a lot of this stuff. It was always somebody else who went, Adam, give me your give me your photocopies. I'm going to go show them to somebody, and that would lead from. A black black and white comics to you know independent color comics to big two color comics like Justice League you know and uh, it wasn't you know it wasn't until I'd say within the last ten years that I started like going to people going yeah you should let me do that <laughs> I was just like I, I was just let assignments fall into my lap and just sort of like Forrest Gump my way through life um, and only. You know, I, I guess I felt like the career clock was ticking, so I would start to go to people and go, "Hey, you know, maybe uh, I could do something for you." And you know, they were obviously on the correct, the correct medication that day because they would say yes. <laughs> so, uh, but no, Justice League was just something that fell into my lap by accident. 
when when you're doing a book like that, and again, you're you know you're rel- relatively new into the industry, you're definitely new at the big two, and then now you're also getting a lot of cover assignments, which obviously would be a huge impact, I guess, on your career and and how people maybe are used to you now. What was that? What what did that? What was that feeling like that you're kind of balancing working on kind of an ongoing, but also now you're getting cover assignments because that's a different muscle. Yes, it is, and uh, I. Uh, maybe here in my, you know, fourth decade, I'm starting to understand, you know, hey, there's, you know, it's kind of like being a sprinter or a marathon runner. There's the same muscles, but you're using them really differently. Uh, but back then it was just work. You were happy for the work. So um, fortunately, fortunately, back then I wasn't allowed to ink my own work or color my own work. So when you're penciling stuff for other people to ink and other people to color, you, that, that crazy, you know, disparity between, you know, the heavy lifting of a cover and the heavy lifting of doing a, a sequential comic, um, maybe wasn't quite so drastic. Hmm. Um, and also, I didn't really become. I mean, I had covers to do, but I, I didn't. I really didn't become a cover artist until after the interior assignment offers dried up. I mean, I, like I said, I just I just went with what people offered offered me. And after Justice League and Ghost, which I did for Dark Horse, nobody offered me interiors. And I don't know if it's you know it's that thing where like you know, you know oh there's this here's this reasonably well known. And respected person, um, they obviously are busy because they're well known and respected. Um, so I'm not going to bother offering them to, to be in my movie or my my television show or my Broadway play or, or you know whatever. Whereas you're sitting at home, you know, having you know ramen noodles and tap water because the phone hasn't been ringing. <laughs> um, and I just you know after after Justice League and Ghost, all I got offered for the longest time were covers, and I accidentally became a cover artist. What was it? Did you feel like you had to retrain again? Like as I said, obviously they they demand very different things, especially of the time. Like obviously, cover art is interesting in how it's kind of changed over the years too, in terms of you know what it asks of the artist to really deliver. Because I, I feel like it used to be much more you know kind of selling you on the issue, and it became less about that and more just about kind of nice art. How how have you felt about kind of the change in cover art over the years as someone who has become known as a cover artist? Well, I welcome it um, primarily because, and I, I noted this. I noted this on uh, social media the other day. I said, "I said we, you know, I saw a cover. It was a Thor cover that was just so gloriously painted." And I and I said, "What I what I what I've been thinking for the longest time is we are in a, a, a an amazing golden age of of comic art talent." You know, I mean, you can sit there and go to any part of comics history and pick out the the legends and the gods of comics, but a lot of the a lot of the the eh, people and a lot of the eh, they're good, they get the job done, but nobody will ever uh, you know build a museum wing in their name. Um, they they're I think there were more of them in the past. Nowadays, there's a lot of really big talent mm. and. Doing, especially with you know what we used to call the advent of desktop publishing, you know where you didn't have to worry about some guy in a printing factory with an exacto blade and sheets of ruby list doing your color separations for you. It's like you can do everything 
yourself and what you digitally hand into your, your client goes to press. So there's a, an incredible amount of control. Mm. And I think that incredible amount of control coupled with what you're talking about, the, you know, the whole, let's make a pretty looking cover. I think those things are some of the forces that have interlocked their fingers and created what is now the modern comic book cover, you know, and I've seen a lot of old timers. I've seen a lot of, you know, silver haired <laughs> comics professionals lament, you know, this cover, these covers are just pinups. These covers are just, they don't tell a story, you know, back in the old days, we told stories with covers and I'm just like, yeah. And back in the old day, you know, the old days, you only had to compete with like 10 or 20 other titles mm. on a spinner rack. And, you know, Nowadays, comics are almost always sold on shelves. And, you know, when I became a cover artist as my main, you know, sort of reason for being, it was, I think it was on Wonder Woman for DC. Uh, I, my, I realized my job was to make people pay more attention to Wonder Woman than they did to Wonder Man or Wolverine, which would be on either side of me. Mm. On the stands, my job was to yell the loudest. Not, I mean, if you walk into that that florist shop that is a comic book store, and there's just a wall of amazing comic book art, what what what, what makes you try something out? It's the cover. It's the cover that grabs your attention, and it's not. A, people aren't going to go. Oh, this cover here is 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 uh, asking me a question about. Uh, the story. Why is the Flash wearing a tutu? Well, if you read inside, you'll find out. You know those old those old Julie Schwartz, you know, covers. That doesn't work anymore. And you could try it, but I think you would fail miserably. The, the, you know, comic comic book covers to me have always been they're the last line of advertising and the first line of storytelling. Mm. You know, and my job as a cover artist ends. When somebody walks up to a Wonder Woman comic that I've drawn the cover for, and before looking at Wolverine, before looking at Wonder Man or whatever, they pick up that Wonder Woman comic because they like the cover. Once that's done, my I punch out. My work is done because at that point, the, you know, most people, most people, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of people who pick up a comic or a magazine or a book thumb through it, and you know, the cover is like a, it's like a carnival barker. It's like, Hey, step right up, Sonny. See the amazing bearded lady, you know? <laughs> and the, the minute they step up, it's like, get out of my face. I'm going home. My work is done. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the, the minute they, they pick up that Wonder Woman comic, it's then the job of the person on the inside to, to make them want to buy it. Um, and I think that's the, I think that's the modern, uh, at least for the last 30 years, uh, job of the co of the comic book cover is is to to be the last advertiser uh, before the, the the purchase is made, and if you can also tell a story at the same time, well, great. Um, but I I do think that the get somebody's attention doesn't matter if you tell a story on a comic book cover if people don't buy the comic. Hmm. You know, it's like what, what's the point of telling a story on a cover if people ignore your ignore the comic and then move on to something else? It's like well. Okay, that was nice, but we really would have liked the sale. 
So a question, when, when you're, again, when you're kind of doing that early transition to suddenly doing more covers in the kind of the early 90s period, what, considering your history with X-Men, what was that like to kind of get the gig as doing the covers for X-Men Classic? Oh, that was fun. Especially because I remember, <clears throat> I remember, because, you know, when I got into the all-new, all-different X-Men, which is what I will always call them, because that separates them from the original X-Men mm-hmm. and, and every team that came, every iteration of the team that came after. You know, that original, you know, Len Wein, Dave Cockrum, and then Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, and then when Byrne and Austin came on, that core group of characters. And, I'm sorry, is my time up? I heard a beep. No, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, Adam. Your time is through. It's like a therapy session. It's oh, it's been it's been 40 minutes. Go home. Um, but I was on the verge of a breakthrough. Eh, talk to you next week. The I remember John Byrne when when John Byrne and and, and, and Terry Austin took over the art job on X Men, and I was just like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, I was just so happy. And John Byrne, I read an interview with him somewhere and he says yeah it's cool but you know these aren't the x-men i grew up with i, I never thought that if i grew up and drew the x-men they wouldn't be the original five hmm. and he's she's right i mean you know you think about it like if you want to grow up and draw batman you grow up and you draw batman if you want to grow up and draw spider-man you draw spider-man you know might you know maybe maybe these days it might be miles morales or it might be spider gwen or whatever um but like when you when you when you love a team book where the roster changes you know like they're Leonard Skinner or something you, <laughs> you sit there and go wow the X-Men that I grew up with are not the X-Men who are out now so I was really lucky in the 90s because I got to do those classic X-Men covers so I got to do new covers for those stories that I had read and enjoyed when I was younger and then later in the decade I did uh, uh, one of the X-Men Wildcats crossovers and they actually had to take place in the 1980s X-Men era. So rather than draw, you know, Gambit and, and Jubilee and and Cyclops with all the pouches and pockets, I got to draw the Cockrum Burn era X-Men. So I was super excited, super happy, did it, got it out of my system. And I went, I never need to draw another mutant if I don't have to. <laughs> when wh- who, who called you to do the original X-Men classic covers? Was it Louise at the time? I really don't recall. I uh, um, and maybe it was because if it was an awful person and created a terrible work experience, I probably would have remembered better. <laughs> uh, it might it might have been Louise, yeah. Uh, but wow, well, next time I see her, I'll have to ask her that. So. I'm just curious too because, like, at the time, as you said, like you'd been working on Justice League and started to do more covers, but I don't believe you'd done any real Marvel work at the time. So it's just, I'm curious how that kind of happenstance kind of happened. I mean, obviously it worked out, and it was also something that meant something to you because of your, you know, prior uh, connection to X Men when you were younger. But it's just interesting that you know, that's kind of your first major Marvel work. Yeah, I think like my first thing was either a Christmas card for Marvel. I did, you know, they would do their little Christmas cards they'd give out. I think the first thing I did was like a Christmas card and like a Marvel Age cover, which was their little comic magazine about their own comics. Mm. But when I actually got to do Marvel Comics covers, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, this is pretty cool, you know. But you know what's really weird about that was, there you go, it's the early 90s, I'm in my mid to late 20s at that point. Um, 
I only got to draw Spider-Man professionally for the first time a couple of years ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there drawing. A, I did. I did an issue of the Fantastic Four for, for Dan Slott, and um, Spider-Man was in. And I'm sitting there going, "I'm 50 years old," and then finally got to draw Spider-Man. And I was like, "This seems weird." That <laughs> you know, you you grow up loving Spider-Man. You have your pick of assignments. You know, if you if you have a successful career, and you know, I've always had the ability to at least phone somebody up or email them and go, "Hey, if you've got room, I would really love to draw this character." And like I said, I have no ambition, so I never hunted it down. Then one the one day, like you know, here I am, fifty years old. I'm thinking, well, this is my third act. You know, I hope I hope I go out with a bang, and here I am drawing Spider-Man for the first time ever since I was a kid, and I'm like. I was giggling. I was like, <laughs> I'm doing the webs. This is fun, you know? And uh, so, yeah, doing doing those classic X-Men, you know, especially after the Justice League, because much like Mr. Byrne had said, you know, the X-Men that he drew was not the X-Men he grew up with. The Justice League I drew was not the Justice League I grew up with. <laughs> I, uh, you know, maybe Batman would hang out once in a while, but the rest of the Justice League was all a bunch of characters who could not float their own titles. And, you know, I, I, I loved it because I, you know, the, the, the Dematis Giffen, Kevin Maguire run was just so gold. It was like, I, I'd love to work on a fun book like this, a book that's as much about humor as it is about the drama. But you'd sit there and go, I'd be sitting there drawing Booster Gold going, I really wish this was Wonder Woman. Or like, you know, I really wish this was Superman because I really would like to draw those characters. Um, so, yeah, by the time I got to draw the X-Men, I was like, oh, now I'm, get, I'm getting to draw some first stringers that I've always wanted to draw. And, um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it was, it, was, it was not too bad. Now, kind of coming back to um, your kind of your your roots, so to speak. So, in the mid '90s, you also get to do some covers for uh, a reprint of the Star Wars, the original Marvel Star Wars, but that were doing being done by Dark Horse at the time. Did that feel kind of like a coming full circle kind of moment for you when that happened? Yeah, it did. And I, I really thought that was the only Star Wars art I was ever going to get to draw. <laughs> I, I, I've always thought that, like, at some point, the career police are going to come knocking on the door, and I have to go out in handcuffs and put on pants for the first time in my life and get a real job at a factory. <laughs> so I was just like, "Well, these two Star Wars covers—they're probably the only professional Star Wars artwork I'll ever get to do. So I might as well try to make them count." And um, you know, one of them—the one with Luke and Leia swinging—I eh, was too nervous on that one. The second one, which was. Uh, Slave Leia after she just killed Jabba the Hutt. Um, um, sorry if anybody is if that's a spoiler for anybody. The movie's been out for 40, the movie's been out for forty years. You know um, that one. I was like, yes, uh, I feel like a Star Wars artist. You know, and uh, and of course that completely was not the only Star Wars art that I ever did. I've, I to this day I still do Star Wars jobs from time to time, and um, you know. Yeah, I mean that's the weird thing is when you, you you have all these things that you love growing up and then you get to grow up and draw them and nobody <laughs> nobody ever has any advice at the beginning of your career of, of what to do with your soul once you once you do them. Hmm. You know, once you, you, know, you spend your whole life loving Star Trek, you grow up and you do a 96-page Star Trek graphic novel and then when it's over, it's like, well, now what? <laughs> like, you know, I'm starting to run out of childhood loves, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, like I said, I got, you know, I don't know, maybe for a lot of other people, that's what impels them to 
do their own, create their own thing. It's like, okay, well, you know, I've, I've had fun reliving my childhood loves as an adult, but I've done them all and the magic's, you know, the magic's gone, the shine's worn off the apple, so I'll just, uh, I'll come up with my own magic. Uh, a couple of years ago, I spoke with Ron Friends, and he'd said that you know his 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 uh, his childhood goal, his big lifetime goal, was to draw Spider Man, and he did it in his mid twenties. And he was like, "Well, I did that, so now what?" Right. It's the Orson Welles thing. It's like you know, what do you what do you do when your when your first film is Citizen Kane, and you made it when you were twenty five? You know. Yeah, where where do you go from from the top of whether it's the top of somebody else's industry or the top of your own desires? It's like after that you go, uh, oof, okay, fine. It's again much like not being able to to you know create ambition in your in your in your, in your life if you don't have it. You can't just go out there and go, I shall now love this thing. <laughs> you know, like you're like, Oh, I've drawn every Star Wars thing. I've drawn I've drawn Star Wars now, that even though I grew up on it. Uh, now I shall love Battlestar Galactica. You don't you don't you don't just pick those, you know, new loves and you know if you're lucky as you as you as you move on through your life, new new things come along and you you fall in love with them naturally and you know, if you are fortunate as, as I have been very fortunate, sometimes you get to work on those things. So there's, it's almost like a a constant series of, you know, falling in love, being a fan of the magic and then actually getting to participate in the magic making. Mm. So in the the late nineties, you become the Wonder Woman cover artist. What, again, what was the kind of the process that of that happening where it became a kind of a, a steady regular gig of covers for Wonder Woman? Well, um, I was at a convention, and uh, Mark Chiarello, who was uh, art director of DC uh, at the time, came up to me and you know he's like you know hey man you know and I can like your stuff and I was like wow thanks I love your work too man thank you and he says hey would you be ever if you ever want to do some covers for me what character would you like to work on and I just you know the ambitionless child said uh and the girl I was dating at the time leaned in my ear and went Wonder Woman <laughs> and I went I went Wonder Woman and he went okay and so I did like two or three Wonder Woman covers for Mark and then he said he says he says thanks for doing those covers I need to find a regular cover artist can you think of anybody and it was he wasn't being coy you know he wasn't like saying to the bad boy you know hmm who can we get to like you know you know, bat for us, you know, that's in the next game, you know, I wonder, he wasn't being coy. He was actually like, didn't know. And he didn't think I would be interested in doing a regular gig. And I said, I'll do it. And he was genuinely surprised at that. But I, you know, said yes. And with only two or three gaps, I think I was, I was the regular cover artist for a good five years. And, uh, he just thought I wouldn't be interested in doing a cover run. And I didn't, I had never thought about that. I mean, at the time, you would look at like Brian Bolland. Mm. Brian Bolland seemed to be like the king of the cover run. Like he did those Wonder Woman covers and he did those Animal Man covers. And you know, I guess also you could sit there and say Dave McKeon on Sandman, or you could say, uh, you know, 
somebody else on some comic that I can't recall. Uh, but it, it, it never it never made me go, I too, I too want the glory of being a cover run artist, not just a cover artist, but a cover run artist. I was like, I, 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 again, like everything else, I fell into it, and I enjoyed it. You know, uh, Kurt Busick once told me, you know. You know, if you want to be a success in comics, you should do – there's a couple of smart things that every successful person does. And in comics, one of the smart things to do is to have an address. No, The fans should know where to find you. Mm. And he's right. I mean, you know, unless you've got diehard fans who – you know, nowadays they can use the internet, but back then they just used previews, um, you know, the catalog. You know, your diehard fans will hunt you down. They'll – thumb through the pages and they'll look for you and, oh Adam's doing something here or oh you know Frank Joe's doing something there or whoever your favorite artist is and then you've got a lot of your casual fans who will only buy your stuff when they accidentally stumble across it in the wild hmm. they love it but they don't love it enough to actually put on a pith helmet and go hunting for it on top of an elephant and if you can have a regular address, whether you're a cover artist, whether you're a writer, whether you're an interior artist, if they know where to find you every four weeks, that really helps. Mm. And I did not realize how important it was for my career at the time to, to always be there on those Wonder Woman covers. And it really did help me. It really did help me. It also helped me not get any interior jobs. You know, people just – I can't even – I think I did – one interior job, which was like six pages for a Tom Strong thing, that entire time, because that's the only thing anybody ever asked me to do. And they all assumed, oh, I, well, you're, he's a cover run artist. He's not going. He's obviously doing that because he wants to do that, and and does not want to do interiors. It's like, oh, so again, I did not get any interior, and I became, you know, by the late '90s, like you're talking about, I did became not only a cover artist but a cover run artist. It's an interesting distinction because I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it makes a huge difference. So let me ask a question. So I'm cur- in 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 and around this period. I'm just curious how the job came out doing colors over John Buscema for a cover for Just Imagine Stanley's Superman. Man, man, I have never sweat like that, and I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a chubby sweaty guy from. You know, New Jersey, living in Georgia. I sweat a lot, but <laughs> on that one, well, DC had hired me to do the covers for um, the Just Imagine Stan Lee thing, and they said, you know, they said, "Do you want to do this?" I said, "Hell yeah!" Stan Lee working for DC. This is the third sign of the apocalypse. That sounds great, <laughs> and you know, I I have had. I've had such a marriage with DC Comics. I mean, we have been good to each other and we have, you know, shit down each other's throats. (laughs) And this is one of the times where DC shit down my throat. Um, You know, they offered me the covers and I didn't find out until I saw the books solicited and previews that I was now the back cover artist. Hmm. And that every individual issue would have a cover by who was ever doing the book on the front. And I was, I was already three, three, four covers in at this point. And I was like, well, this sucks. You know, I mean, how hard is it to pick up a phone and say, hey, look, you know, upstairs has made a decision. Sorry about this. They just let me find out the way anybody would find out. I always thought that was a little bit rude. Um, 
probably why the last few covers of that project sucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the things that he said was, you know, for the for the just imagine Stanley Superman, John Buscemo was doing the, the cover for the front, and they they said, you know, much. You know, much like you would say anybody else that you've abused, you know, hey, you want to do something tonight? <laughs> I was like, oh, you, you know, you, you got a shiner and you've got like a missing tooth. and You're like, OK, let's go out. You know, um, <laughs> you know, my sort of beloved abused housewife relationship with D.C. Um, even though I was still like a yeah, back cover. Who the fuck is a back cover artist? God damn it. You know, Um they said, would you – it was almost really like – if you think about it now, it's it's humiliating. It's like they hired me to do the front covers. They put me on the back covers without telling me. They let a third party inform me. And then they said, hey, would you like to cover one of the front covers? It's like, wow, way to bring that up, guys. Now I'm like, what a shitty thing for them to do at that time. Um, but they said the magic words, John Buscema. Mm. And like all kind-hearted people with you know two eyes and a heart – I have always loved Buscema's artwork, and they said, you know, would you want to color a John Buscema Stanley Superman thing? And I said, well, I'd rather color a John Buscema Conan, but if this is all you got, then fine. And that was that. That's a really long answer for a, a strange question, I mean, a strangely easy question, but uh, it was. I had, to, I had to give you my, <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, comic book domestic abuse backstory on that you know otherwise it's just uh, they called me up and i said yes that's a pretty dull story um i have a naive question as a follow-up i mean have there been have there been many instances where you've had to color someone else's work that wasn't your own no i i you know i'm i'm sure there might be one or two other instances um but if somebody came up to me and said who, who else have you colored beside yourself the only one that I could rattle off the top of my head would be that Buscema cover. I, I have not done it quite a lot. Hmm. Not enough to commit to memory, apparently. <laughs> I guess not. Um, in 2003, again, you get to do another X-Men cover. You get to do a, a God Loves Man Kills special edition cover. Again, kind of with kind of a, a much more classic version of the team. What is is it always a thrill to do the X-Men regardless? Or is it, again, it's in and around your special era? Well, sorry, I was lighting my cigar. Um, the uh, uh, that's a weird one because I didn't do that cover. Didn't you? Not not intentionally. That was that was a um, a Jacle print that when I was working for Wildstorm back in the doing Gen thirteen for Jim Lee back in the mid nineties, they got that uh, they got a lithograph program where they would do Jacle prints. They got their own Jacle printer and. You know they would, and I was like, "Wait a minute, you guys are wild." This was before Wildstorm was part of DC, by the way. But they were like, "Wait a minute, you guys have a license to do Marvel Jacques?" And they were like, "Yes." And I was like, "Okay." Like Bugs Bunny, just I shrugged and went, "All right," you know. <laughs> and they said, "Hey, would you like to draw the X Men?" And I said, "Can I draw the all new, all different X Men?" They said, "You can." And I was like, "Woo!" And I did that piece. And imagine my surprise eight or nine years later when it shows up as the cover. For a new edition of a comic, and um, that was that might have been my first my first realization that you know when you do some work for these 
these big companies, you know, they can do whatever they want with it. When, 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 once you've handed it in, they can make a t-shirt, they can repurpose it and they're under no obligation in any way, shape or form to compensate you or give you credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's part of the deal. I mean, that's, that's on the work for hire voucher that you fill out is, is a little contract that basically says it's, it's all, it's all theirs. But that was the first time it hit me where I looked at it and I went, I didn't get and, and now at the time, at the time DC Comics paid a reuse fee, hmm. and DC doesn't do that anymore. But like at the time, if they if they repurposed your artwork for something else, they would get pay you a nominal fee. And I don't think Marvel's ever done it. Um, but you know, at the time, I was used to hey, if DC took one of my Wonder Woman covers and made it into a T-shirt, I got a small check, hmm. and then. Then all of a sudden, it's like you know, you did something for Marvel, and it just appears somewhere else. And a couple of times they did it, they removed my signature. Oh, really? Um, when I did the X Men Wildcats crossover, doing again the the, the all new, all different X Men. Um, if I say that three more times, I win a set of steak knives. By the way, I'm just really <laughs> enjoying saying that a lot tonight. Um, the uh, uh, James Robinson, who wrote that. You know, he had this opening sequence where an, an X Man uh, had to infiltrate the Hellfire Club's sort of winter retreat, and he said, "It doesn't matter which X Man it is." So he says, "Who's your favorite?" He asked me when I started. I said, "Who do you want to draw and who do you not want to draw?" And I said, "Nightcrawler is my favorite X Man. He's my favorite mutant. I'd love to draw Nightcrawler." So he wrote this opening scene with Nightcrawler as the infiltrating X-Man, who he should be. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's the stealth mutant. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I pulled off a couple of panels that even to this day, I look at and go, I, didn't, I can't believe I drew that. That's really nice. And, uh, <laughs> one time I was sitting at a poker game at Falcon in Minnesota and I looked across the table and the guy sitting across from me had a dark Navy blue t-shirt on with that, with a Nightcrawler from one of the panels from that comic. Wow. And uh, no signature. Hmm. They, they, you know, it's they're not obligated to do that. And somebody once tried to tell me, well, for legal reasons, they have to remove your signature. And I was like, whatever. So uh, again, another long answer to a simple question. But so I just had to let you know, I did not. They did not. Nobody called me up and said, "Would you like to do a new cover for?" You know, God loves man kills. Uh, it just was a, you know. You do a piece of artwork and it ends up in a folder and it becomes what's known as an asset and they can do whatever they want with it. Hmm. Let's move on to maybe happier things then. <laughs> now that I've opened up... I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bitter. I'm, not, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Now, now that I've opened up an old wound, um, I'm just curious, what was it like doing a shift between, you know, you're doing Wonder Woman covers and then you're the cover artist for Tomb Raider, which would have had a very different aesthetic. How did you find the, you know, kind of adapting and, and moving to that kind of change? Because, again, you're going from more of a, a superhero kind of character to something very different. Well, well that, not that uh, different. <laughs> yeah. Yes, her, her, breasts, her breasts are wildly different. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, it was, it was total fun. It was total fun because that's my favorite genre. Ever since Raiders of the Lost Ark, that whole globe-trotting treasure hunting adventure story 
has been my my genre of choice. And when Top Cow asked me to do those covers, uh, I was like, oh, hell yeah, you know. And at the time, I was actually supposed to be doing a Tomb Raider miniseries for them. Um, and that never that never went anywhere for other you know dark open wound reasons uh i won't i won't i won't bog this 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 podcast down any more than i already have with tales of uh, and then this company like bent me over the log and they did me from behind and they spit on my neck <laughs> but then i worked then i worked for them again a week later you know um uh, but like those Tomb Raider covers, the great thing about those Tomb Raider covers, and, and and a similar thing happened on my Catwoman covers too, was when they gave me the Tomb Raider covers, that Tomb Raider comic was circling the drain. They knew that their license was going to run out at some point in the near future. I got, I'm sure they knew exactly when, but they did not know when they were going to pull the plug on – they did not know when they were going to pull the plug on that book. So they just told me, could you please hand in a cover on the 28th of every month? And I was like, would you like to see a, a, a sketch? <laughs> you know, and they were like, eh. You know, they, they literally had the, you know, grandma's going to die, so it really doesn't matter what you bring her to the hospital. <laughs> and so all their Superator covers were done with no sketches. In fact, there were times I had to bug them and say, could you give me a hint about the content? <laughs> you know, like, just 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 narrow which hemisphere of the planet is she on in this issue you know and there's one there's one cover where i drew her um it's like an orange cover and she's coming out of a bath and she's got a towel and she's holding a gun and there's like a a painted palm tree on the wall behind her i just i didn't know what to do so i just did you know her coming out of a bath you open up the first page of the comic and she's being chased by three ninjas across the north pole <laughs> and i was just like you got to give me something to work with here, you know. I mean, I mean, I understand a lot of times. Again, these covers that don't tell stories but just grab your attention—they can just be a neat, you know, all-purpose image of the character mm. that just sums the character up. But also helps when they want to repurpose it down the road and make it into a mouse pad, you know. <laughs> But those covers were so much fun, and they, fortunately they were able to say, okay, this one coming up is going to be the last one. And then I did that one where she's laying on the beach in a bathing suit, and she's picking up a martini, and she's tossing away the Uzi, um, which seemed like a good a good, a good, a good, idea for our last cover. And, uh, you know, the same thing happened on the Catwoman covers. It's like, you know, the, la- the last two years on Catwoman, they were like, yeah, the book's being canceled. Yeah, the book's going to be canceled. So don't, they don't even bother doing sketches. Just hand in covers. And it just never got canceled. You know, I mean, I think I drew three or four final covers for Catwoman before they finally said, yeah, this is the last one. And um, that was my one of my most free times being a cover artist. It was like I'm doing these major characters for major companies and they aren't even they're even asking to, to, to see what I have in mind. They're just letting me have free reign. And uh, I, I don't remember what the project was for, but the next time somebody asked me for a cover sketch, I was like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, I, I, I thought it was some sort of linear progression that you started off in a comic shop and eventually you get to the point where you're just a cover run artist that, no, that is too, too big to do sketches. And the first time somebody asked for a sketch, I just I felt like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, <laughs> But those, no, those Tomb Raider covers were, were, were tons of fun. I've always, 
I've struggled because I never really think I've drawn a, a, a really particularly iconic Adam Hughes, Lara Croft. Anytime you look at one of my, 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 my runs on a character and you're like, the character looks different from cover to cover. That's because I'm trying to figure out what I want them to look like. Hmm. You know, and with, I, to this day, I've never drawn a, a Tomb Raider that I, that, yes, yes, yes. I will just, that now I will hang that next to my drawing table as a model sheet and I will draw that every time from now on. Um, but no, Tomb Raider was fun. In the mid two thousands, I mean, you you do some really kind of influential pieces with Power Girl, and I, I would say that you know you're definitely your vision of Power Girl is definitely one of the ones that people kind of remember. And that uh, I mean, when you start doing some covers with the character, uh, and then also doing the origin of the character with Mark Wade for one of the issues of Fifty Two, you kind of became synonymous with that with a certain interpretation of that character. What is it about Power Girl that you think speaks to you, and why do you think it works for your art? Uh, well, there's two reasons. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, the uh, I'm like, come on, she's got ridiculously large breasts, you know, and uh, you know, I uh, uh, I built a career on doing that. Um, and she's like one of she's one of those few characters where you can get away with that, and you know, people people get the joke. They don't they realize that it's not it's not entirely titillation for titillation's sake, and that you know, especially when you look at Amanda Connor's Power Girl, you know, it's, it's, you know, her, her, her bust size is, is part of the charm and the, and the, the, the humor of the character. Mm. So, um, you know, me working on Power Girl, it's just sort of, uh, you know, you know, it's like David Bowie and Bing Crosby singing Christmas characters. It's like, why did this not happen sooner? You know, this is perfect. Um, <laughs> Um, but she's, I mean, she's a fun character to draw and, uh, you know, I, yes, I love drawing sexy women, but I also think it's, it's funny too. I think there's a, there's, I, I love those, you know, classic mid 20th century pinups, like, like, you know, by greats like Gil Elvgren, you know, where there's, there's almost as much humor going on as there is sexiness and, I think there's a lot of potential fun. I'm not going to say fun because some people make it make it seedy and, and and some people make it unpleasant. Some people make it in such a way that it angers certain people. And I think I've got haven't gotten too much grief in my career over things like drawing Power Girl and drawing her the way you know she's supposed to be depicted because people can sense that I'm not doing anything malicious. I'm I'm in on the joke. Mm. You know that, that like all superheroes are ridiculously good looking, and they're all ridiculously well proportioned. And we've got this one character that is just so over the top; you can't you cannot take it seriously. Um, and uh, you know, I wish I'd done more. Uh, I was supposed to be I was that was actually supposed to be a cover run as well. And after two issues, because I'm, I'm I'm slow, and I, I'm I'm I haven't gotten any faster, sadly. Um, <laughs> I'm slow, and um, I always overcommit because I'm always afraid that the work's going to dry up. So I say yes to too much stuff, and that was like this weird period where I said I shall be an adult and turn down some work. And um, I had a bunch of stuff lined up, and I well, the, one of the things I, I, I told the Power Girl people, I better stop, otherwise I'm just going to keep I'm going to blow deadlines, and I'll make you mad. And why don't we just 
stop after two covers, and I wish I hadn't. I, I really, you know, wish I'd stayed around. Mm. Um, we talked before about Star Wars, but I, just a general question about you know working on licensed projects. I mean, as a cover artist, and you know, what is it like to work on licensed properties where you're going off actual like you know people's likenesses, like in Serenity, etc., as opposed to working on you know the bigger characters at Marvel and DC, where obviously you're working from certain character models, but it's not the same as you know going on an actual person's face. Uh, it's pure hell. Um, you know, there's, you know, sometimes these actors and actresses and these licensed pro, pro, uh, projects, they sign away their likeness rights. And, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of editorial back and forth. And some of them are, are pretty, have, you know, in their contracts, they have likeness approval. And, you know, they can be a little... Sometimes they can be a little mean. Sometimes they can be, um, uh, you know, I won't mention, you know, the star of the X-Files or the, <laughs> the star of Buffy, uh, both of whom were not happy with their noses and wanted every drawing of them to be the rhinoplasty they, they didn't want to get. Yeah, but there have been times where, like, we've been told to change likenesses so much that it doesn't resemble the actor anymore. People think we can't draw, Hmm. and it's just because the actor's vain and is like, "I don't like my, I don't like how I look." So I want you to, I want you to be, you know, my dream face. Um, Most of the time, it's 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 all right. I mean, I've I've got a few nightmare stories, but I've I've got more, you know, easy. That was uh, that that went through with no changes, you know, or that went through with the minimum amount of changes. Um, the best feedback I ever got was back in the nineties. Um, I did a, a bunch of Star Trek Next Generation uh, covers for DC Comics back when they had the license, and uh, <coughs> we got a. Um, back then, they, they would have a sheet. At least Paramount did. You'd have a sheet, and anybody could write notes. And then this, this, once the note, all the notes were compiled on this one sheet, it'd be faxed over to DC Comics, and they could tell that the editor could look at it and go, da, 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 okay, I'll tell the artist to change it. And I really wish this had not been faxed over because, you know, back then that thermal paper, it eventually, you know, the ink evaporates. Mm-hmm. And you just have a blank sheet, you know. Um, I, I had drawn a picture of Captain Picard, and the one note that came back, and it said in cursive handwriting on the Paramount note sheet, my head is not that pointy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what can it take for me to get this original piece of paper? And it's like, I, this is better than Patrick Stewart's autograph. Is Patrick Stewart yelling at me about the pointiness of his bald head? I was like, oh, it was, I just, I was like, I love this so much. And uh, that was the best, that was the best one. I, the best uh, bit of, you know, Feedback. I mean, you know, ultimately, when you're doing this license stuff, you know, when you're working on Power Girl, it's just you and 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 DC Comics. But when you're working on a licensed property, it's you, DC or Marvel or Dark Horse or whoever, and then it's also the studio. You know, so just extra. There's extra eyeballs on it. There's extra opinions. Uh, and sometimes these people don't know art and they don't understand what's going on and they just, 
you know, sadly, in a, in a lot of these places, you know, bean counters who have graduated from Harvard get put in positions of creative authority and they don't know what they're doing. And that can be frustrating. That can be very frustrating. Mm hmm. Moving on, I was curious, um, like your your covers of Zatanna were absolutely incredible, and it just seems like such a perfect fit for your art. Um, what, what was that process of working on Zatanna? Um, that was another book that was circling the drain, so they didn't give a crap <laughs> what, you know. Um, and I, I've always loved the character, and one of the things I love about her is when she's in that full-on tuxedo with the fishnets and the bow tie and the top hat because you know back in the 70s when they or 70s or 80s when they gave her a superhero costume it was like uh, but it's not her anymore and now she's just another superhero hmm. you know it's like i loved i love that sort of vaudeville quality to her and whenever there's a character that i'm asked to draw and there's an angle there's something about that character that i can fixate on that's usually when I'll do my best work. And I just loved the idea of, you know, Zatanna being that, having that vaudeville quality. And, um, you know, definitely would have loved to do another 20 or 30 covers of her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some, sometimes your cover runs are eight covers long, you know, and. For sure. I mean, that, that last cover for that, that book, which Owen read with her just kind of not even looking at the camera, just kind of eyes down and on the cane, like, it just looks so perfect. And it's just, well, it's stunning. It had, like, yeah, it was really simple. And then the nice thing, too, I love it. I love it. I mean, I get to do this right now on my Black Widow covers for Marvel, and I, I, I loved it back then on Zatanna when they let me mess around with the logo. Mm. When they give me a high res version of the logo, and I can put, I can, like, on Zatanna, sometimes I would put lights on it. You know, like like theater lights. Sometimes it would be the only illuminating thing on the cover, and it would be mm-hmm. you know glowing and illuminating Zatanna. And you know, I can do a really nice, I can do a nicer job if they let me have that freedom, as opposed to draw an image that only takes up seventy five percent of the cover, leave twenty five percent at the top, and then we will artificially stamp the logo on it. And it's like, well, that's fine, but I, you know, I can, I can give you a better job if you let me play, and. Um, Give me just enough rope to hang myself, and I will make it a spectacle for you. And that was a f- I like that one because you know I got to you know I made the logo look three dimensional. It's actually you know she's underlit by the stage lights, you know those those lights at the front of whatever you know the the stage is. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, I actually had that underlighting, you know, interacting with the logo. Um, Funny thing is, when I did that cover, we knew that was the last one. I think it might have been because the New 52 was about to come out, maybe. Mm. Um, I can't recall exactly. Um, um, and since I knew it was the last cover, you know, I, I, I did it. I thought it had like a Bob Fosse kind of a feel to it. You know, she looks like she's ready to, you know, like like she's got her head down. She's waiting for the orchestra. And then the minute... You know, the minute they strike up, she lifts her head. The audience can see her eyes, and and the show begins. That's what I was going for. Mm. And what, you know, when I found out that it was the last cover, uh, when I handed the cover in, I did a joke version where you know, like back in the old days of Vaudeville, when somebody bombed, somebody in the wings would lean out with, with a shepherd's crook mm-hmm. and yank them, yank them off the stage. Um, so I photoshopped in a, a shepherd's crook that's about to go around her neck. 
and I, I sent it to Mark Chiarello with DC, and he laughed so hard he said, "I'm half tempted to run that." <laughs> <laughs> Can, can you imagine how great that would have been for like, here's the last issue of a comic and the character is literally about to be yanked off stage. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we should have done it. We should have done it, you know. And the great thing about doing stuff now in this age is – this is why I don't get as bent out of shape as I used to when, when, when covers get changed or the stuff get changed. Is I can just hop on the internet and show people what it was supposed to look like. Mm. You know, I can sit there and, you know, do my own on my Patreon page. I go, here's how it looked before it was edited, kids, you know. And um, uh, I think recently I, I ran that uh, Twitter or Instagram or something. I showed that and people laughed. And, uh, God, that would have been funny. <laughs> I'm curious what it was like. So it's interesting when you take these kind of other types of jobs come up and they seem so different, but it makes sense that, you know, you want to try different things when you do Ferris for as long as you did as the cover artist there, which is again, such a, you know, totally different, uh, kind of genre than typical superheroes. Um, again, kind of getting to stretch yourself in different directions. How much fun were those? Because looking at them, they're just, first of all, like they're so gorgeous, but they're so different from each other. And again, they're channeling different things and it's just so, so much more unique. And as you said, it's, it's definitely a good way of, you know, grabbing someone's attention, saying, "Read this," uh, or at least pick this up because they're so vibrant. Right. Um, what was that like working on Ferrist? It was most of the time. It was great. I, I worked. I worked on it because I was very late in discovering Fables, which is the book that it was a spinoff from. Mm-hmm. Even though I had known the you know Fables creator Bill Willingham since I started in comics, he, he's the person who introduced me to the Justice League editor. Oh wow! You know, if you remember, Bill Bill was doing fill-in stuff during the Kevin McGuire run and Ty Templeton, who was right after Kevin McGuire. Um, so Bill was working for Andy Helfer at DC Comics at the time, and Bill introduced me to Andy at the old Chicago convention in the summer of 1988. And, you know, the following February of 89 was when I started working on Justice League. So Bill, Bill's the reason why I got that, and Bill and I had been friends for years. I had never read his book, because Bill, Bill's a, such a smartass, <laughs> such a troublemaker, um, like I didn't read his award-winning book out of spite just to piss him off, I think. Um, and then one day I had to do a drawing of his, uh, Snow White as a commission in a, in a, in a book we were given. It was, we were given a friend who was a big Fables fan. We actually, um, uh, made it, bought a, a blank hardcover sketchbook and we were, my wife and I put fable sketches in it, so I had to learn who the characters were. So I started reading it, and even though I wanted to be spiteful to Bill, I fell in love with it and read all of them. And, uh, you know, I was always like, I'd love to do these covers, and he was like, you know, James Jean, like, yeah, I'm not going to touch that guy, you know. And then the spinoff happened, and one of his, I think one of his... Um, prerequisites for the spinoff was that Adam does the covers Hmm. and I was promised a lot of creative freedom, which dwindled after a while. Um, I can see the point where for me, the passion went out of the project and it became just a job. Hmm. Um, and uh, I still try to do a good job, you know, but uh, you know, like again, when you're when 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 the passion's there, when there's a hook, when there's something for me to grab onto more than just a paycheck, that's when you get my best work. Um, 
but ultimately it was it was very experimental. It was a lot of fun. I got to do a lot of stuff that normally I wouldn't do. And you know, I always think of myself as not so much a comic book artist as I am a professional illustrator, and I want to be able to work for anybody. Let's the comics dry up tomorrow. Um, I want to be able to go to you know Hollywood or books or magazines or whatever, and still be able to get get assignments. And you know, the stuff I did on Ferris is would you know if I had to shop myself around outside of the comics industry to try to get work, the fairest covers would be a lot of that portfolio. Hmm. Interesting. Now I'm curious around this period, like how, I mean, obviously you work a lot with Mark and so that, you know, was guided a lot of the, the gigs that you kind of got, but how does before Watchmen, Dr. Manhattan happen? Because again, you hadn't done a lot of interiors for a while at that point. You'd done a lot no. more cover work and this is a, you know, I, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you know, a major project, you know, definitely got a lot of headlines. That's a big deal. A lot of eyes are going to be on this. First of all, is it stressful to then, you know, be doing interiors again, to be working on a project like this with, you know, a property like this, and also to be working with JMS? Well, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, you know, Mark asked me to do it. You know, and you know, I, I'm the I'm the I'm the king of the non-disclosure agreement. I, I keep secrets better than anybody because I knew about before Watchmen two years before it happened. Wow. Mark locked me in almost two years before I put pencil to paper on Dr. Manhattan and um, nobody knew because I'm good at keeping my mouth shut. (laughs) And I wanted to go back to doing interiors, not full time because I can't do a book a month, but I wanted to draw. I was, I was really starting to feel because before Watchmen was what? 2012. So this would have been 2010. I was really starting to have this, you know, sort of crisis of faith in myself going, am I a comic book artist who doesn't draw comics Hmm. or am I an illustrator who dabbles in comic book covers? Like, what am I? You know? And I was like, I should, I should be doing interiors. I know how to tell a story. I I should be able to do this. Um, and so when Mark offered me that, I said, yes. And, you know, almost two years later it happened. And, I spent the better part of a year, a little over a year, working on it, and um, you know it, the, the rust shows. I can't, I can't really look at before Watchmen because there's there's too many bad panels and not enough good panels, and it, it you know, for one, I'd never ink myself doing interiors. That was mm. dumb. <laughs> um, and you know, I don't have the, I, don't, I don't have a style like Mike Mignola where it's like you know, yes, you can. You can easily do a comic book with this style. Um, and I was, oh my God, when I was working on that, I was just like, I was trying to draw like it was a cover. And it just, it kept biting me in the ass. And, you know, what I draw, I draw pinup covers. I draw medium shots. Mm. You know, I draw large boobs. That's it. Um, <laughs> the first time JMS required me to draw like a crowd scene or a character very small on a panel, I was just sitting there going, do I draw a nose at this size? That way, I mean, I'd forgotten how to draw tiny characters. That was no longer in my Rolodex of skills. Mm. And uh, so before Watchmen was a lot of work. It didn't help. The controversy did not help. Um, but I'm glad it, I did it because I I felt like, okay, I can I can do both now. I can do interiors and I can do covers. I can I can I can break it up. 
And, um, you know, I hopefully, you know, it's not my intent to do any disservice to Alan Moore. Um, I was just like, oh, here's a cool project. wasn't It wasn't until it exploded that I was like, oh, this this is a bad thing. Did he did he not sign the rights over to DC? You know, it's like, um, so it got ugly and that put a bit of a pall over the project. But mm. um, I made it through and the book came out and civil, you know, Western civilization did not, in fact, <laughs> uh, collapse. So. As I said at a press conference at the time, um, there's nothing we can do to hurt Watchmen. Watchmen is like one of the most perfect examples of our medium ever created. And, um, you know, if, if you don't like what we did, pretend it didn't happen. Mm. You know, just, you, you, just, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> I should, I should listen to my own advice because I, I, I don't feel that way about Star Wars. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> Uh, so uh, uh, I am a, quite a hypocrite. I'm discovering. Um, so uh, um, yeah, so watch. It was pretty cool. I mean, it was funny. It was when when obviously the, what they wanted to do and what they ended up doing were different things because what they the project that was pitched to me was the wedding of Doctor Manhattan and Subspector. Hmm. And I was going to be drawing a Dr. Manhattan Silk Spectre book. And then by the time it came out, Darwin Cook and Amanda Connor did Silk Spectre, and I just got to draw a blue penis for a living. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, 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 I mean, we did a big panel at Chicago at C2E2 that year, and it was all of us. It was like, you know, the Kubert, uh, 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 Adam Kubert, um, it was JMS, it was me, all these different people. And somebody, asked me, you know, were you excited to draw Dr. Manhattan? And I on, I made, I said the honest answer. I said, I said, no, I wanted to draw Night Owl. And the audience went nuts. They laughed. And, you know, Dan DiDio and Mark Chiarello just looked at me and laughed. And I was like, you know, I was like Steve Zissou at the beginning of Life Aquatic. I was like, why are they laughing? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, just, I meant that. Um, but uh, somebody later in the panel asked, why do, why do you think DC hired you, meaning me, to draw this, and I and I looked. I pointed to Mark Chirillo. I said, "Well, they know how much I love. I hate drawing pants and hair." So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just it, it just it just became a big joke. And uh, I mean, I'm glad I did it, and I learned a lot about myself and my process. And exactly like you said earlier in this podcast, you know, it's, there's a different set of skills and there's a different different kinds of heavy lifting between covers and interiors. And I did not know it at the time. Uh, and I know it now. What was it like? I mean, you're, you, you go back to interiors and then again, you're inking yourself and, but you now you're not coloring yourself. What was that like to kind of see someone else? Because you're not, after having done all those covers, you look at your art and you know, when you're starting to do it, generally speaking, I would guess how you would light it or how the color is going to look, but now you're not doing that. What is it? Yeah. Was that hard to let go of that piece? That That's like asking somebody else to blow your husband for you. I was just like, <laughs> I, I was just sitting there like going, cause like most of my time when I'm drawing a comic book cover or these days when I'm doing my interiors where I color them myself, I know what I'm going to be doing in the colors, so I can draw stuff that facilitates, you know, it's the underdrawing mm -hmm. for the final piece. 
as opposed to I'm going to draw a coloring book and then another person talented in their own right, but with a different set of, of ideas and priorities is going to fill in the colors. And that was hard to get back into. Fortunately, Laura Martin colored it and she only lives about five minutes from me. Um, she's one of the three people that taught me how to color in, uh, on a computer back in the nineties. So we were able to work together um, I don't know how happy she was about that, but she didn't complain outright. Um, but you know, it was weird. It was weird. And, um, you know, now I just do it all myself. Now, can you t- how, how did, uh, Betty and Veronica come about? I mean, that's a gorgeous, fun, you know, kind of, uh, a few issues that you did, but how did that kind of come about that you get to work on these characters? Well, you know, the Archie people, they had a little bit of a renaissance with um, the um, afterlife with Archie, mm-hmm. and all eyes were upon them, so they were just like, hey, let's let's have a, you know, a, a, a Riverdale renaissance, and they called me or emailed me, I can't remember which, uh, it's all the same, <laughs> uh, they contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in working on our new Betty and Veronica relaunch? And I said, sure. I mean, me drawing Betty and Veronica, I'm sure that's the fourth sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, you know, especially because everybody's probably expecting me to draw Power Girl, you know, uh, you know, in a Riverdale sweater. <laughs> the, uh, um, and they, I said, well, what, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I heard the words come out of my mouth. But I didn't say them. I heard the words, could I write and draw it? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I was just, maybe maybe there's a ghost inside of me, like my own little personal poltergeist. It was like going, let's see what, let's, let's see how how big they explode. Let's, let's see if we can hear them hit the floor over the phone. And they let me do it. Wow. So... When, when you do that, so first of all, I mean, again, on the first issue, I can't remember if it's all the issues, but you're not coloring it either, uh, but you're doing, the, obviously, the colors on the covers. What was that wor- like working with Jose, because obviously it has a very different kind of design sense than, of you, than yours, but it still looks good. Um, I mean, obviously, they didn't give you a bad colorist, but again, with Laura, at least it was someone you, you knew probably a little bit more and was close by and we were able to collaborate more. So what was it like being able to kind of let go and let Jose do his, his job? It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. We'd become good friends with Jose, my wife and I, okay. uh, at, at conventions. And, you know, he knows so much about art. He's a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, we, were, we had been in Barcelona a few years earlier and he took us on a museum tour where we all three were just, you know, people buying tickets, but he knew so much that was going on about all the art. That he, it was like he was our tour guide. And we just loved him, and we, we hung out with him. Sometimes we would visit him in Baltimore, and then we'd all go out to, you know, find museums out in the countryside, like the Brandywine and the, the Wyeth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that hard. And, Jose, uh, I, I only – I only work with people who I, who are willing to work with me. Like I, I would never give my stuff to somebody and go, you know, that's not true. Dave Stewart. I would probably give my stuff to Dave Stewart and say, just do whatever you want. I'm curious to see the result. <laughs> 
anybody else, I would probably go, hey, would you be willing to have a little bit of a, a little bit of a Lennon McCartney back and forth here? You know, it's like, you know, I'm drawing it, you're coloring it, but let's be a bit of a team, you know. Um, I wouldn't work with anybody besides Dave Stewart that would refuse to work that way. What is it about Dave that you would trust so implicitly? Because he just can do anything, you know, and I, I like his sensibilities. You know, like the stuff he does on Mignola is different than the, than the stuff he does on Richard Corbin. Hmm. Or Duncan for Grado, but I love all of it. And anybody who's got that wide a, a, a net that they're able to cast and still be amazing at, at, at all points, I would I would probably very easily, you know, surrender my fears and go go to town. Just be back before the street lights are on. I just want to see what you do. Hmm. And that's not to put down Laura or Jose. It's just that you know. Uh, you know, there's some people you want to work with, and then there's some people you just want to hand it over to and see where they take it. Hmm. Moving a little bit forward, when you get, I mean, there was a lot of uh, cover artists who worked on, I believe, um, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, like doing some of the, the covers right around when it relaunched. Was it What was it like to kind of be asked to contribute to a Spider-Man cover like that when you're doing a relaunch like that? Which cover are you talking about? I believe I'm trying to remember which one it was. I, I had it and I lost it because um, I think is that the one is that the one where he's holding the picture of uh, Black Cat Wednesday? Or oh, well, I did, I did three of them. I, one where he's holding Black Cat, one where he's holding Gwen Stacy, and one where he's holding Mary Jane. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, those were the funny thing is those were shop variants. Those were that weird phenomenon that popped up in the last few years where a shop could get a. Um, as long as they paid for it, they could get their own cover slapped on the mm. already printed insides, and then they would just go out and try to, you know, headhunt heavy hitter uh, artists uh, to do the covers. And that was one of the first ones I did, you know, and for a while there, it was a very lucrative thing. Mm. Didn't hurt anybody. You know, mm. as long as as long as some, some shop had a, a diamond account and enough money, they could, they could do it do it and you know they had of course had the artwork approved by marvel or dc or whoever but you know it was a you know i got to do a couple spider-man covers that ironically didn't feature (laughs) spider-man that's just i mean that seems like that happens to actually a lot of people yeah but here's the thing is these i could i literally could draw what i wanted the 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 person who would hire me to do it said just draw what you want you know Mm -hmm. and I somehow elected to not draw Spider-Man on any of these Spider-Man covers because that first one, the one where he's on, obviously on the bridge Mm. that Gwen Stacy fell from and died and he's holding a picture of her and it's just Spider-Man's hand and the photo of Gwen Stacy saying, I will, I will always love you. Um, We did that one and it was so successful. The first thing you think a lot of times is, well, could this be a series? Like what if this, same thing with Mary Jane, same thing with Black Cat, same thing with whatever. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, I never, I never got to the point where I did, I got to do an Aunt May one. I really wanted to do an Aunt May one. <laughs> what was it like coming back to Wonder Woman to do the variant cover for 750? Variant cover for 750. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's weird. It's like I did a cover for Wonder Woman a few years earlier for, 
um, Sensation Comics. Hmm. And that was right around that, 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 that assignment that, that she's flying over the clouds and she's all backlit and everything. That was a, it was a combined regular cover plus digital cover. I had to draw it. I had to draw it in a weird shape so that it would fit digitally, but then it could be cropped to be a regular floppy comic book cover. And, um, I had a hard time finishing that cover and I ended up, um, having a breakdown while I was working on it. And I, cause I thought it was going to be the last time I ever drew this character. And I fortunately, I mean, I just, I just felt very fragile and I just, that's, I, I was like, why am I crying over this? It's just, it's just an assignment, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, that's when I went and, um, saw a bunch of doctors and I, I was diagnosed with anxiety. Um, and ever since then, I've been on medication for my anxiety. I have been to therapists. Um, it's been a, an ongoing struggle. Um, and that Wonder Woman sensation, I think it was Sensation Comics number seven, um, really let me know that I was, I was suffering from something that I wasn't really aware I was suffering from. And... Uh, you know, I just thought I was reading a lot of books that made me cry, and I just thought that there were a lot of videos on the internet that made me cry, and um, I just thought I was feeling fragile because I was overworked, and no, it was because I'm, um, I had, a, um, I don't want to say illness or disease, but something was wrong, mm-hmm. and now I know, and you know, the medication helps, and the the therapy has helped, and the 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 exercises that my therapist taught me to help battle with anxiety meant that like every other time that I've drawn Wonder Woman since I was just like, Hey, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like seeing an old girlfriend, you know, Hey, here's Wonder Woman. We're going to go have, you know, a drink, you know? Um, so the one you're talking about was fun because it was like, you know, it was like, you know, Hey, we're getting the band back together. You know, we broke up years ago, but you know, now we're going to get back and do a few songs. And, uh, you know, I've done a handful of wonder woman covers since that one you're talking about. And, uh, it's always just been a good time. I enjoy it. Um, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's no heavy burden of responsibility to be, you know, the cover run artist. It's just like, you know, especially nowadays where every, every major comic has six covers. Hmm. True. You know, uh, and for a while there, I was like, you know, I'm not even a cover run artist. After Ferris, I was like, I'm not even a cover run artist, cover run artist anymore. I'm a variant cover artist. And I was like, well, this is my third act. I, I get to be somebody else's B cover. And, um, you know, I made peace with it. Uh, but no, every, every time I get to draw one of those characters that I, you know, was lucky enough to be associated with early on in my career every time i get to do a tomb raider cover or a wonder woman cover or a catwoman piece i really enjoy it it's 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 fun it's it's like going to visit your hometown and then when it's done you go back to where you live hmm. so I've, i have a question um what uh just moving forward a little bit what what was it what what was it like working on gwen stacy because that's such a interesting I mean, obviously, it's another you know beautiful woman, but it's it's it just it felt different. Um, and I guess maybe something about that Gwen Stacy character and how you know people do kind of view that character. How did you approach doing those covers? Well, 
yeah, well, I mean, I have to fl- go flip the switch, flip the switch off in my head that says, you know, make her sexy as possible. Um, <clears throat> and you know, there's a different sensibility with her. Same as doing, same as doing Betty and Veronica. You know, I did not, I did not tart up Betty and Veronica. You know, and everybody thought I was. And some people, some journalists who I thought were my friends, said some disparaging stuff before Betty and Veronica when it was announced, going, "Oh, Adam Hughes, you know, Adam Hughes is doing Betty and Veronica. That's pandering to the male gaze." And I was like, "Well, fuck you. I thought you were my friend. Thanks for giving me the benefit of the fucking doubt." You know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I can do different things. Not everything is, you know. I do is the character here she is and she's licking her left nipple on this cover. You know, uh, I, you know, I go, well, what's right for this character? And Gwen Stacy is a sweetie. Gwen Stacy is, you know, the love of your life. You know, it's, it's, she's dealt, she's handled differently than you would draw Mary Jane or black cat. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate that, One of those other comics that was in that box my cousins gave me mm-hmm. was the death of Gwen Stacy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I didn't even know who she was. And it wasn't the issue where she dies. It's the issue where Spider-Man sort of goes nuts and hunts down the Green Goblin and almost kills him at the end. And the Goblin ends up killing himself on his own Goblin Wing glider. Um, I didn't even know who she was, but it was impactful. I was like, wow, this is serious. He obviously loved. He obviously loved her, and I've never seen anybody die before in a cartoon or in this box of comics that they gave me. Um, and uh, so I've always had that Gwen Stacy, that special Gwen Stacy spot in my heart. So it's always fun to draw her because you know she, drawing her also reminds me of that that box of comics that I first discovered my love of comics from. Mm-hmm. I have a, a an obvious question that I forgot to ask when, uh, with regards to Betty and Veronica. Of the two, which did you find that you enjoyed drawing more? Oh, I'm Team Betty. Team Betty. I'm Team Betty. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Veronica can, you know, take a long walk walk off a short pier for all I care. <laughs> um, now, I, I I I enjoyed I enjoyed Veronica, but everybody wants you to pick. Absolutely, for sure. And I'm. You know, I'm I am Team Captain America. I am Team Betty. Uh, um, I am you know Team Gwen Stacy. Hmm. Has nothing to do with blondes. Because uh, <laughs> saying it like that, I really seem like I have a fetish. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Just so yeah, Betty was Betty was my you know uh, when I was doing the book, Betty was my sort of anchor character. Hmm. And Veronica was sort of my orbit character, you know, like Betty was the one where I was kind of drawing from and Veronica was the one that you were fascinated by, but looking at from a distance. So I have a few listener questions before I let you get back to your evening now that I've taken up so much of it. Um. You, you have not. This is actually, I don't talk to people. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good pandemic boy. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I stay home the other day. I, 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 my, um, I've, I've had a beard ever since I got super fat and, uh, <clears throat> I hadn't shaved or, or cut my hair since quarantine started in February. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really looked like a crazed mountain man. And, uh, <laughs> last week, last week I woke up and 
half my beard was in my mouth because I had, I had rolled over on it in my sleep with my mouth open while I was snoring. And I just, I was like, I've never had so much beard that it, 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 it you know, it, it, it actually ended up in my mouth. And, you know, I just, I just realized like, wow, I have not seen anybody. I have not talked to anybody. I do not, you know, I mean, I'm not a phone person at all. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, text humor. I think that talking and animated GIFs is the the most fun thing that's been invented in the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't, this is the most meaningful conversation I've had since probably May. So, wow. uh, uh, <laughs> I don't mind the time it took up at all. Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I made it count then. Um, so I have a few listener questions. Uh, first is from Britton Payne who asked, uh, how did you decide to give Metamorpho such prominent eyebrows? Is, is, is it a, I hate to say it, is it a prank question? I don't think I've ever drawn Metamorpho. No. I don't know. <laughs> was Metamorpho? Wait, was Metamorpho? No, Metamorpho wasn't in Justice League, was he? Uh, I don't know if he was at that time. You know, I, I I didn't check through the question well enough to be like, huh, did he actually do that? I don't know. I, I was once at a panel where, you know, 45 minutes of me just yakety yak, yak, yak. And then we opened it up to questions from the floor and somebody from the audience stood up and asked me a question about... Um, the Walking Dead, because they thought I was Robert Kirkman. And it didn't occur to them in 45 minutes of talking about Power Girl's boobs and and Dr. Manhattan's blue penis that I might not be Robert Kirkman. And uh, I, I'm sorry I cannot answer the metamorpho. I think metamorpho is like one of the handful of characters I might not have drawn. Okay. And if, if I did draw him, I, 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 if I you know what? I'm going to give an answer... Just in case, um, I have a few gifts, um, more than a handful of curses. And one of them is I was not given eyebrows um, when I uh, when I was uh, uh, ushered forth into the world. And uh, I think I give characters strong eyebrows because I am um, uh, lonely, sad, and resentful. Of my 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 blank Whoopi Goldberg like expression. <laughs> that uh, that is a fantastic answer. Yeah. yeah, just you know what? This should be a feature of your podcast: asking questions that have nothing to do with the person, and just say, just come up with an answer. Just pretend. Just pretend. <laughs> Uh, the next question, at least, is meant for you. Uh, this is from uh, Deborah Herbert Gallegos, who says, "Describe your style of working with writers, and who are some of the writers whose styles meshed with yours well." Well, that's unusual because I've, I haven't worked with that many. I mean, in the beginning, I did. I worked with Dematis and I worked with mm-hmm. with Giffen. Uh, I worked with you know Straczynski on Doctor Manhattan, and uh, other than writing stuff that I've gone on to create, I guess I've worked with Mike Mignola. Um, a couple times recently. In fact, the second one came out today. The, uh, the our second Hellboy comic uh, actually hit the stands today. Mm. And um, and so and so she's asking how I 
how I worked with them. Yeah, like how do you collaborate, I guess, is the question. And, and whose maybe writing style seemed to work best with yours or, you know, that you were able to uh, capitalize more on how they presented it or is just a better style match, I guess. I, I, you know, I never even thought about it because I, I just I always feel like, you know, if I'm working with a writer, it's my job to to help bring, you know, their story to life. Hmm. So I've never actually felt one way or the other about, about, you know, am I jibing with this person? Am I not jibing with that person? I mean, I will say that the one time I worked with Chris Claremont, uh, we did a Star Trek graphic novel like 30 years ago. And that was the only time in my life I've ever worked Marvel style. And it's, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to say that I had a difficult time working with Chris cause he's a great writer and I'd been a big fan of his work for a long time. It's just the, I was, I'm used to getting full scripts mm. and suddenly being handed a plot and not knowing exactly the words that are coming out of the character's mouths was that did not, I don't, after, after 96 pages, I still wasn't used to it. Mm. So, um, and I, I don't think I worked that way again until I worked with Dan Slott on Fantastic Four. And, uh, at that point, you know, when I worked with Dan on FF, I think that was only two years ago, I was just like, I'm just going to draw what I want. You know, (laughs) (laughs) when you're starting out and you're working out with like, you know, a writer whose work you love ever since you were young, like Chris Claremont, you're like, golly, I got to do my best. Now I'm just like, ah, me and Dan are the same age. I was just like, ah, I'm just going to put this in. He can put words in their mouth. Um, you know, I, I have really enjoyed working with Mignola. Um, you know, but a lot of times I don't work with the person all that much. I mean, I, I, I will say I've worked more with colorists than I've worked with writers. Mm. You know, um, I'll get a script and I'll go, okay, all right. I, 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 I'm going to figure out what they're going for. I'm going to see where I can exert my own creative presence and where, where not. Um, no, I just thought about it. I do, I do have a good answer for it. I've worked with a lot of great... Mark Wade. I really, I really, really enjoyed the, the few pages that Mark and I have done together um, uh, a lot. I feel like that the, the, the Mark and I... Um, are, are, are have very similar sensibilities. So yes, there was an answer for her question. There we go. Uh, we next go. next question is from Ralph Warner. There's actually a couple questions, but uh, the first was whatever did happen to that Wonder Woman graphic novel? Is it still out there or not happening? And did the art get used elsewhere? It's not a graphic novel. It was a four issue miniseries, All Star Wonder Woman. Um, it never got used anywhere else, but some of it did get used in. The Wonder Woman movie, <laughs> uh, so uh, it's probably never going to see print. Uh, he also asks, uh, "How has COVID and the lack of conventions affected artists such as yourself, who whom do well on the commission circuit? Has there been no impact because of social media, or is there still an impact?" Um, <clears throat> definitely been an impact in my bank account. Um, you know, I, I, I used to make good money at conventions. Uh, I don't mind seeking alternative forms of income because I, I, I look by the time, by the time COVID, you know, landed on us all, uh, I've been doing conventions for 30 years, 32 years Mm. and I'm done. I'm baked. I just like, I'm, I'm allergic to the sight of an airplane at this point. (laughs) And I don't, 
you know, it used to be I go to conventions because it was like, well, hey, you know, I get to see people. It's like, yeah, I get to interact with these people on social media. I don't need to see them in person. Hey, I get to go shop and buy toys and model kits and cool comics and stuff. Now I can get all that stuff online. Mm-hmm. And the reasons to go to a convention would just dwindle and dwindle. And my just ugh, of like travel grew and grew. So, you know, but that being said, I mean, I did a virtual convention for, I don't want to say in Malaysia, because I wasn't in Malaysia. I was sitting right here. Uh, but I did that back a few months ago, and that went very well. And then last week, I did a virtual signing thing where we had a bunch of people send CGC comics and stuff that they wanted signed or, you know, blank sketch covers that they wanted headshots on. Two people from CGC came over. We did it out back on my deck. We all wore masks. We stayed more than six feet apart. Lots of hand sanitizer. There's going to be a lot of, bless you, there's going to be a lot of uh, people getting very minty smelling comics (laughs) once once CGC grades them and sends them back. That was very good. I mean, we had a lot of fun. I was exhausted. It was five and a half hours straight without a break. Wow. Um, so maybe when all this is over, and I hope someday it ends, I, I hope we have not entered just the age of the pandemic yeah. where, you know, whether just the sheer number of people that live on the planet Earth or the things that we've done to alter the Earth have created, you know, a, you know, a wonderful environment for these, these, you know, super diseases to just go, go, go. If it ends, then we too return to some sense of normalcy. There might come a point where I'll go, you know what? I miss San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's unlikely, but it could happen. Actually, uh, kind of coming off of that last question, he, uh, he asked one more follow-up, which was, uh, any plans to do more convention sketchbooks, or is that trend winding down for artists and conventions? You know, so much in life depends on what my wife wants. Um, and anybody, <clears throat> anybody who's married knows that sometimes it's all about what your your significant other it wants. And my wife doesn't want to do sketchbooks anymore. And you know, just we did a, a 30th anniversary one, full color. It was had a very nice cover. I mean, I, I normally loathe my own artwork, and even now I look at the cover and go, I'm, I'm happy with that, you know. And we're still sitting on copies of it. And she's like, they're just not, you know, she's like, everybody's got sketchbooks, you know, everybody's, everybody's got enough sketchbooks. Nobody wants, wants them anymore. And, you know, maybe we'll do one again when there's a little more demand for it. You know, I mean, let's face it. I did them every year from either 2001 or 2002 up until 2017. Wow. It was a yearly thing. And I got the idea from Mignola. I, I bought Mignola's little sketchbook one year, San Diego, like 2000 or 2001. And I asked him, you know, wow, I mean, this is neat, black and white. How much did this cost you to print? He told me. And I said, how much are you charging? He told me. I said, how many have you sold? He told me. And I just like, like, like an old cash register dollar signs came up in my eyes. And I went, what? You know, and, uh, you know, I've always, the sketchbooks are nice and people enjoy them. 
Um, but you know, if, if if the market's flooded or people have, you know, people are rubbing their bellies, going, ah, "I have enough Adam Hughes artwork." There's probably other ways that we could be using our energies. I'm sure we will do another sketchbook at some point. Okay. Uh, I have two last listener questions. Uh, first, Joshua asks, uh, who's your favorite female DC or Marvel character to draw? Oh, golly. Um, it changes. I'm a fickle, fickle bunny. Um, um, more often than not, I'm going to go, I'm going to lean on Catwoman. Hmm. Um, I, I love the fact that Selena is, is, is pretty, but she's also dangerous. Uh, but unlike a lot of other characters, you can get away with some serious humor. I can get away with some serious humor mm. with her, um, and it, it isn't at the, at the character's expense. Also, when I draw her, she has short black hair, which is very easy to draw, and a lot of times she's wearing a entirely black costume with just her face pe- peeking out of this like like leather porthole. Mm-hmm. That's also easy to draw, <laughs> and uh, you know sometimes sometimes kids when you get older, um, you got to stop drawing at the end of the day because your eyes give out or you just can't sit in the chair any longer. And as I'm getting older, that's happening more and more. Um, you know, it used to be I'm here, and I am here until this page is done. I am here until this cover is done. It's like now it's like I am here until my eyes, you know, clock out and go. We'll see you upstairs. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm like blinking. I'm looking. I'm trying to focus on the page, and and or like, you know, my legs or my back starts to really. I've got a really comfortable chair too. I've got one of those Herman Miller Aeron chairs with the lumbar support. It's like you know, really, really saved my tailbone. And um, uh, also, and and I've I've mentioned this many times to their official their Twitter feed, and they've not responded. The Herman Miller Aeron chair is the best chair for farting through. Um, it, it's got a mesh. It, it's not a solid thing. It's got a mesh weave, and like when you when you have to toot, I mean, it it does not sit in your chair like an old bar rag, and it's just it just it just goes and returns to the universe, and it's just like you know, I thought like I could get a promotional deal with Herman Miller, and they just did not respond to any of my tweets about how good their chairs are for farting. <laughs> so, uh, um, so was this? Is this still the sketchbook question? <laughs> Am uh, I still rare? No, we 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 moved on to favorite female uh, uh, DC oh, or Marvel character, yeah, and the yeah, answer was yes, Catwoman. Yes, yeah, yeah, was Catwoman, and I turned it into a story about farting it in my chair. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, but like you know, I, like like right now, I, I mean, I'm working on this Captain America story for Marvel, but I've also, I've, um, uh, I'm doing these these Black Widow covers for Marvel, uh, and if it, it when I'm working on these Black Widow covers, it feels like how I felt when I was working on Catwoman, you know, and it just there's a, there's a similar sensibility to the characters and their costumes, and. Um, you know, it just kind of reminds me that, like, yeah, I should probably just spend the rest of my my life drawing women in black latex because uh, it's uh, uh, apparently a niche industry that uh, that there is some small demand for. <laughs> All right, last question, I promise. Oh no! You ready? I suppose. This is from uh, Curtis Finley, and he asks. 
How has digital ink and paint changed the way you approach your art, and is the process different? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, um, you can tell he's an artist and actually thinks this way, and I am a, a poor layman who does not always understand things. Oh, okay. I mean, it's a fun, it's a serious question, uh, which, as you can tell, I'm not as fond of <laughs> answering as I am about, like, say, you know, farting. Um, <laughs> but I, I, there are a lot of people out there who work entirely digital, meaning that there's never a piece of paper involved in the process. They've got a um, some sort of tablet, um, some sort of application, some sort of stylus, and they create the comic or the cover, whatever the artwork is, entirely in the digital realm. I have not gone that far yet. My, I am still, I'm, I'm amphibious. I'm half analog, half digital. Mm. Um, I draw the artwork traditionally, pencil, paper, um, you know, the usual old school style, scan it on my computer, get it into the digital realm, and then I color it digitally. Mm. And I know that with my eyesight, you know, doing, doing, you know, geezer things that I'm probably going to end up drawing digitally at some point. I'm going to have to make that plunge just because... I'm having trouble like finding, um, you know, the ability to, to see what I'm working on 100% clearly. Uh, I remember years ago, Brian Bolland, I visited him. Um, Allison and I visited him and his wife um, in, uh, in England, and he works completely digitally because he said because of his eyesight. And, you know, if you've got a 27-inch screen and you can zoom – you know, you can compensate for your, your, your eyesight by having the computer zoom in a way that you can't, you know, you can't get your eyes that close, your nose that close to the page. No, no, no pair of glasses will do this. That can really balance the scales and you can buy yourself a few more years as a viable illustrator. Um, so I haven't gone that far yet because my wife does not approve. <laughs> um, reason why she does not approve is my wife sells my original artwork. Oh, okay, gotcha. And there's no original artwork if you work digitally. So um, she she wants us to hold on to the idea of there there being physical original art for as long as she can. So that's a pretty fair reason. It's not bad. I mean, I, I you know I'll argue with her on stuff that you know you know on things I think I can win. <laughs> She's like, oh, my God, did you fart? And I'll go, yes, it's a Herman Miller chair. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> I will I will stand by that, you know, but things like, you know, hey, if you if you if you if you get one of those tablets, we can kiss the art sales goodbye. And it's like, you know, the art sales, you know, we've got some home repairs that need doing. Uh, we've been in this house since 2009 and some stuff has crept up and it's like, you know, some art sales will will help pay for that. You know, and it's like, okay, let's, I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm so fortunate, blessed, whatever word you want to use, that I have a special niche job in the world that enables me to sit there and go, hey, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I get to work on characters that I like. I can't remember the last time that I was forced to take an assignment with a character that I know nothing about. May have been Metamorpho. I don't know. I get to draw... <laughs> 
I get to draw characters that I like. Right now I'm doing this Captain America story, and I'm drawing Captain America, and I'm drawing the Invaders, I'm drawing Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. I've always wanted to do World War II comics. That's so amazing, and I'm so fortunate. And, you know, being able to sit there and go, we need to replace the front of our house, or we need to do this or that. It's like, okay. We have a way to make some extra money, and a lot of people don't have that. And I'm, I, I will never take it for granted. I'm very fortunate. Okay. Well, Adam, again, thank you so much. You've been more than generous with your time. It's been over two hours uh, speaking with me tonight, so thank you so much. Um, it's been really fascinating get, you know, getting into your headspace, understanding more about your craft, um, and just how you're, in, you know, have approached it for so long. And so I am very appreciative. Thank you very much for uh, for taking part today. Adam, thank you for having me along, and, um, <laughs> you know, thank you for putting up with me. I, I do ramble, uh, but, you know, it's either it's either you or the FedEx guy. I'm going to talk somebody's ear off during the pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, um, thank you for having me. If you let me know where this will appear, um, I will – I've got several social media outlets. I'll, you know, boost the signal and spread the word. Absolutely. I will let you know the minute it goes live. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. You too.